Okay, the, the joke. I, I told a parrot joke last week, and I'll tell another one this week. I, I told this one several years ago, so you may remember it. There was an East Texas farmer who um, was driving down an East Texas highway, two-lane highway, and he had beside him his parrot. The speed limit was 55. He said to the parrot, I'm going 70 here. I don't care. They're, 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 this, this is never patrolled and the traffic is light. I'm just going to go 70 miles an hour. Well, sure enough, he was pulled over by a cop. And the policeman said, do you realize you're going 70 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone? Oh, I didn't realize I was going that fast. And the parrot said, that's a lie. He just told me it's going 70 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. And, and he says, it's never patrolled. So the cop went to side to write out a ticket, and the, the farmer said to that parrot, you hush up, don't you say another word. So the cop came back and he said, by the way, I don't think you had your seatbelt on when uh, I came. Oh, yes, I did. I just took it off so I could, uh, I could take out my billfold. That's a lie. He never wears his seatbelt. He says it's too restraining. So the cop went off to write another ticket. By now, the, the farmer was becoming rather indignant, and he said in strong words, you hush up, don't you say another word. So the cop came back and he said, I see your, uh, your inspection sticker is, is late. Oh, I never noticed that. And the parrot said, that's a lie. He laughs about the inspection sticker. He says, they never see that anyway. My now, the, the farmer was very angry. And he just let loose a tirade against that poor parrot. He stomped the floor. He shouted and he screamed. And the cop said to the parrot, does he always talk to you that way? No, only when he's drunk. <laughs> Doesn't have a thing to do with what we're going to talk about today. What you believe always determines what you do. Belief precedes behavior. That's a principle that you see over and over again, and you can especially see it in Paul's epistles. He gives doctrine, then duty. Principle, then practice. He constantly has that, that in his mind. Uh, remember Ephesians is the sister epistle of Colossians. They're written by the same man, Paul, carried by the same messenger, Tychicus, to churches only 100 miles apart. So Colossians and Ephesians are very similar. If you will, step over to Ephesians for just a minute. Turn to Ephesians. And I'd like to have you notice Ephesians chapter 4. You notice that between Ephesians, there's Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and you notice how the verse begins. The chapter begins, therefore. Now, the first three chapters are doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. There's a little application, but basically doctrine. Chapter 1, what a wonderful salvation of grace we have. Chapter 2, you're dead in your sins. And the middle wall of partition has been broken down between, between uh, Jews and Gentiles. And chapter 3 talks about how God has given to Paul a special commission to preach the grace of God in the church of Christ, that, that, that you are together. Now you come to the application. Look at chapter 4. Therefore, he's looking back at chapters 1 to 3. 
I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, and so on. The application of Ephesians is one church, one group of people. Therefore, walk in unity. The theme of Ephesians is the unity of the church, and therefore, our unity in walk. You have it in Romans. I'm not going to look at it, but you remember the first 11 chapters is doctrine, heavy doctrine. Once in a while, some application, but basically doctrine. Then in chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, and part of 16, you have application. Now, we have the same thing in, in Colossians. So if you will... Turn to Colossians chapter four, uh, chapter chapter three, verse four. Colossians chapter three, verse five. I'm sorry. Therefore, now take a look at your outline. In your outline, you have point number one: doctrinal, the person and work of Christ. Secondly, defensive against human philosophy, human doctrine. Even there, it's doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. So when you come to point three. Duty, the application of what he said in the first two chapters, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 4. Now, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, when he says, therefore, he's looking basically back at the last part of chapter 2 and then at chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. For instance, look back at chapter 2. He says in verse 11, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That circumcision made without hands clearly looks at Christ's death on the cross. And then he says, if you will, down to verse, uh, I'm down to verse, uh, verse 13. And you were dead in your transgressions and the circumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him. Now, remember we said, pre- pretend that there's a cross right in front of you. I mean, where you are right on, personally, there's a cross. On the right-hand side is all that you were before Christ, B.C. Then you became a Christian, and you have it A.C., after Christ. Now, Paul is saying you were dead over here, and you were put into Christ. When you're put into Christ, you died with him. So that old life is over, and you're raised to walk in newness of life. That's his point throughout these these verses. That's the main thing he is saying. In fact, look at verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, you died with Christ. The great Pauline doctrine is en Christo, in Christ, in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you've been raised up with Christ... It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and you are in Christ. Now he's making application of that. So we come to chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore, because of the doctrine that we've been teaching, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now, I'm sorry, the, the New American Standard is usually very literal. But here they're paraphrasing. 
I do not like it when translators paraphrase. It means they are interpreting the passage. This is not what the Greek text says. The old King James actually is closer. It says, mortify. Mortify the members of your body. Mortify. There's a huge denomination that has the doctrine of mortification in which you afflict your body. You may whip your body, do damage to your body for the sake of holiness. It's called mortification. One of the most gruesome pictures I've ever seen was, I believe it was in the Philippines this took place. There were several men that had hooks put through their back, like fish hooks without the barb, hook after hook after hook, scores of these hooks on their backs, with strings, strong strings, attached to a cart, on which was an image. I forget if it was image of Christ or Mary, but it was an image. And they were pulling that cart with those hooks in their back. Of course, there was blood. And they were doing that for mortification. We don't believe that. The Greek literally says, put to death. Put to death. Well, now let's take a look at this. It says in chapter 3, verse 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. What it's literally saying is, put to death the members of your body. Whoa. When you talk about members of your body, you're talking about your hands, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your feet, your brain. Now, if you take that literally, put to death would be, well, you cut off a hand and another hand, a finger. No, it can't mean that. You put to death the body, the members of your body. That is the imperative. Put to death the members of your body. Well, let's look now at small letter B in your outline, the old sins. Put to death the members of your body, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, desire, and greed which amounts to idolatry. Whoa, 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 whoa. Those are appositional. Put to death the members of your body, and then you list five sins. What's that saying? Well, there is in grammar a construction called metonymy. M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y. Metonymy, which literally means you change names. You have one name following after another. Let me explain. The news media may say, the president declared today, then a few paragraphs later, the White House declared today. Well, the House doesn't speak. It's just uh, the White House is metonymy. It speaks for the for the, for, the pres- for the president, for the person. You may have heard me say, as the pulpit, so the pew. Well, the pulpit doesn't talk and the pew doesn't respond. That's metonymy. I'm talking about the preacher, as the preacher, so the people. It's metonymy. So when he says, put to death the members of your body, he's talking the members of our body, used as instruments of sin. That's what he's talking about. Have done with it. When you put something to death, it's done. It's finished. Put. It's quit. So here, put to death the members of your body. Don't use the members of your body for sin. Now, when you look at the five sins here, and there's some disagreement about what I'm about to say, but I take it that the sins here are all 
sins of immorality, sexual immorality. Take a look at it. Therefore, put to death the members of your body. Immorality, that's the word fornication. The, the, fornication is the general, wide word, word for all sexual immorality. It's different than adultery. Only married people can commit adultery. Adultery is the sin of breaking the marriage bond by sexual immorality. Fornication covers everything. It was commonly used of prostitution. It was used of, um, of a, a husband or wife being, uh, uh, being disloyal to the marriage vows. It was used of homosexuality. It was used of bestiality. It was used of all kinds of sexual immorality. That's the word here, immorality. Then impurity basically means uncleanness, and probably he's talking about sexual uncleanness. Passion, again, the passion of sexual immorality. Evil desire, same thing. Evil desire looking at sexual immorality. Then finally, greed. Uh, the word here has, has the idea of defrauding somebody, taking advantage of somebody. That's what the word literally means. Now, if you will turn just over the next book, next book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you will, look at chapter 4. I'm going to start with verse 4. I'm after verse 6, but let's start with verse 4. Well, let's start back farther. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion. That's what you have here. Like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud. That's the word. That no man transgress and defraud his brother in, in the matter. Now, if you will turn back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Very quickly. Remember, these are parallel epistles. Very similar. Different emphases, but very similar. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral person or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater. What's he saying? You covet when you want another woman. Remember the Ten Commandments? The Tenth Commandment is thou shalt not covet. And in Exodus chapter 20 it says you shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife. Interestingly, you have the Ten Commandments repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, he says, in this order, you shall not covet, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his house. In Exodus, house comes before wife. In Deuteronomy, wife comes before the, the, the house. And I've wondered, in Deuteronomy Moses is speaking about Israel 40 years after the Exodus. And I've wondered if, through experience, Moses saw, oh, the big problem is adultery and coveting a wife. And I think that's what you have here, taking advantage of another person by using that woman immorally, or vice versa, wife using a woman using a man. So I take it all these sins 
are sexual sins. Interesting, he also goes on to say, which amounts to idolatry. T-A-I, which means think about it. Anything you worship, anyone you worship, turns around and shapes you. If you worship money, it's going to determine your actions. If you worship immorality, it's going to determine your actions. Whatever you worship turns around and shapes you. And here he's clearly talking about immorality and coveting. Coveting wrong things is going to shape you. That's why the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, whoever looks after a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. Whoever looks at a woman, and it's a purpose clause, for the purpose of lusting after her. It's interesting, some women dress so immodestly that a man's response is immediate. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about... (laughs) So some lady that's dressed very properly. I can't think of anybody that has a dress that's more modest than a Salvation Army lassie. Here's this woman, Salvation Army lassie's dress, very modest. And some leprous man will look at her and start to undress her in his mind. That's what this is talking about. Whoever looks at a woman to lust after her for the purpose of lusting after her. That's what this is talking about. Now, interestingly... Paul is talking about Colossae. Remember we said that when you study your Bible, join the church at Colossae if you're studying Colossians. This is indicating what kind of a culture was in existence when Paul wrote this epistle. It was immersed in filth. And history says this. Gross immorality in the Roman Empire. Do we have to say anything more? What about our culture? We're immersed in filth. If you look at two nights of television and look at their programs, I don't bother with those programs, but if you look at two nights of television and their programs, you are exposed to more than your grandparents were in a lifetime. It's just all around us. And Paul is saying, cut that off. Get rid of that. Put that away. Well, page two, very quickly. Page two. We're going to have to mock Schnell. A reminder, verses six and seven. For it is on account of these things, these sins, that the wrath of God will come. Now, when it says the wrath of God will come, that's again an interpretation. I agree with the interpretation. But it literally is the wrath of God comes. It is coming. Now, there is a, a very common construction in the Greek text which you find often, uh, the present tense used for the future. It's called the future use of the present tense. In 1 John chapter 2, this world is passing away. Well, the world's not passing away. It's just as strong now as it was when John wrote that. This world will pass away. In Matthew chapter 17, Elijah is coming. Well, Elijah will come. This is talking about wrath of God that will come. Now this construction, the wrath of God is very interesting. 
when you have the wrath of God talking about coming, it usually looks ahead at the tribulation. In fact, I remember years ago, I was the first reader of a thesis on the wrath of God coming. And he came to the conclusion that it always, when you have the coming of the wrath of God, it always looks at the tribulation. And I think that's probably correct. Other Bible scholars agree with that. That it's looking at the coming tribulation. Therefore, it's a description of what you have in in Romans. That's what you have in the description of Revelation 6 to 18. Where you have the seven seals. Judgment, judgment, judgment. And when the seventh seal is broken, there's silence in heaven for a half hour. Some have said that means there are no Baptists in heaven. <laughs> half hour silence. I've heard it otherwise, too, that there are no women in heaven, but it obviously doesn't mean that. Half hour silence. Why is there silence? Because normally a document was sealed with seven seals. When you open the seventh seal, you could open the document. Here you can't. There's seven trumpets. There's shock. Absolute shock. There's the now seven trumpet judgments. And at the end of the seven trumpet judgments, you have seven bowls of judgment. They come rat-a-tat-tat real rapidly. So you have judgment, 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 judgment. These judgments are the expression of the wrath of God. Now it's interesting, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says there is a revelation. It's being revealed right now, the wrath of God. On humanity. Now that's not future. Because he goes on to say, God gave them up. That's judgment. God gave them up. That's judgment. God gave them up three times over to indicate that one sin persisted in leads to a greater sin. Because they did not keep their keep the what God had ordained, God gives them over to judgment. And I think that's what you have in the revelation of God's wrath. You see it today. God's judgment is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against those who hold down the truth and so on. And we see that today. You rebel against God's word, there's judgment of God's wrath going on right now. But that's not what you have here. I think he's talking about these sins bring about terrible judgment on this world to come. Very quickly, verse 6, For on account of these things the wrath of God will come, And in them you once walked when you're living in them. A reminder, first of all, of God's judgment. And secondly, that's what you used to be. That's what you were. Remember the cross? B.C. That's how you lived before you were a Christian. Now move on very quickly to more old sins. Verse 8. But now, the change between what you were... But now, you also put them all aside. Now, when he says put them all aside, he uses a, a construction that means take off a garment. Just shed those things. Get rid of those things. And you'll notice what these sins are? Personal relationships. How you use your tongue. Take a look at it. Verse 8. Now you also put them all aside. Anger. That's the word wrath. Same word that you have for the wrath of God. Now, isn't that interesting? There is a legitimate wrath, and there's a wrong wrath. The word that's used here has the idea of a settled disposition. It just settled. Wrath. 
And interestingly, in Ephesians chapter 4, around, I think it's around verse 26, Paul says, be ye angry and sin not. Same construction, same basic stem. Be ye angry. In fact, dear people, there are times when it's wrong not to be angry. If you're just passive about a man that abuses a little boy, there's something wrong. When you find some man that, or some person that takes a 10 or 12-year-old girl and makes that sweet little girl a sex slave, there ought to be wrath. When you see injustice, when you see something that's just not fair, there ought to be wrath. In fact, it's a, when it says be angry, that's called a permissive imperative. You're permitted to be angry. But when you are, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. But here this wrath, obviously, is just a wrath that's unjustified. You're just going around with ill temper. Then he goes on to say, anger. This is more the flash, tumus, the flash of anger. Now that describes my wife and me. Um, I'm Dutch, stubborn. And when I get angry, it just settles in. I hate to say that. My wife is Scotch-Irish. And the Irish comes up, boom, and boom. But in 10 minutes, it's over. More than once, that dear gal has had a little bit of an explosion against me. And 10 minutes later, she'll walk into my office and say, honey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Now, that shows how great that gal is. And I'll just hold it. That's why I think Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't hold it. That's stupid. That's foolish. But he's looking at both kinds of wrath. There is anger, wrath, malice. The word malice just means evil, kakia, evil. Don't be filled with that evil. Slander. You know what that word is? Blasphemy. You see, we can blaspheme God but we also can blaspheme people, just saying evil things about them. That's why this is translated slander. That's a correct translation. Don't speak evil of other people and abusive speech, speech that does damage. Don't let it proceed from your mouth. Did you notice all those sins for them? And then the last one is, do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. Um, speak the truth in love. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Did you hear what that's saying? Did you hear what that's saying? When it says you laid aside, it's a stronger word. It doesn't mean just take off. It means strip off. Just strip off. You've stripped off the old man. What's the old man? The old man is not a way to refer, refer to your father. Um, the, the old man said, we don't do that. Old, don't ever, I could, boy, I remember as a youngster, I could never talk to my dad about my dad as the old man or my mother as the old lady. I could, ooh, if I, would, I, would been, ooh, I wouldn't even dare say it. But the old man is all that you were before you're a Christian, all that you were on this side of the cross. You've stripped that off. In fact, if you will, Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. When he had disarmed the rulers, 
That's what he's talking about, stripping off. He stripped off these rulers of, of iniquity. So strip off that old stuff. That's why this, this, this lesson is titled, Those Dirty Old Rags. Get rid of those dirty old rags. You put them off positionally. Since that is true, live according to that. Then he goes on to say in verse, verse, verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, verse 10, and you've put on a new garment. You put on the new self, the new man, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. What a verse. Ooh, what a verse. You've put off the old man positionally, and you put on the new person over here. Positionally, you've done that. He's talking about your position and your practice. You put that off, you put that on. Now he goes on to say, it's being renewed. Did you get what that's saying? When you trusted in Christ, you moved from this side of the cross to this side of the cross. But there's a constant, constant renewal, a change in your life day by day by day. I love 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. The best way to illustrate this is a short story that was told by Nathaniel Hawthorne called The Great Stone Face. In that story, Nathaniel Hawthorne makes famous a natural configuration on a mountain in, in New England. It was a, a stone face that was marred by God through nature, that was put there by God through nature on the side of a mountain. Well, there was a legend that there were some simple people that lived in the valley and this is what, what Nathaniel Hawthorne says. There was this great stone face and some simple people who lived in that valley who believed that one day there would come to the valley a great deliverer who would be the personification of the stone face. Born into that valley was a little boy named Ernest. He heard that tradition and he began to study the great stone face. He meditated upon it and thought upon it. Finally, when he was a teenager, the great stone face was coming to the valley. So said the people. His name was Mr. Gathergold. Mr. Gathergold had gone away to make a fame and fortune and money, and now he's coming back to settle in that little village. There was a parade, and in that parade, people were clapping and shouting, and, 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 and Ernest looked into the face of Mr. Gathergold as he went by in his gilded chariot, and he said to those around him, no, that's not the great stone face. Everybody said, oh, surely it's the great stone face, but time proved to be earnest, time proved earnest to be correct. Mr. Gathergold went to the end of the street, bought a tract of land, built a mansion, and spent the remainder of his days counting his shekels. Ernest kept studying the great stone face. Once again, the rumors rifled through the valley. The great stone face is coming. This time it was general blood and thunder. General Blood and Thunder had made his fame and fortune in the military, and now he's returning. As he marched briskly past in the parade, Ernest looked into his face, and he said to the people around him, that's not the great stone face. Everybody lapooned him, but again, he was proven to be correct. Time went on. He kept studying the great stone face. And the story goes on with person after person coming to be the great deliverer, and none of them panning out. 
Finally, the story concludes. Ernest is a wizened old gentleman. A poet comes to the valley not to be the great stone face, but to study the way of those simple people in that simple valley. And one evening, that poet who had the soul of a poet saw Ernest standing on a plateau talking to a few people about the great stone face. And in the distance was the great stone face. And that poet, who had the soul of a poet, said, Ernest, Ernest, you've become the great stone face. He studied it so intensely, so long, that it was transformed to that image. But we all, with unveiled face beholding as in the mirror of the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's what this is saying. Take a look at verse 10. And you have put on the new self. I mean, that's a definite act. Who is being renewed day by day to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We're being made more and more, by correct knowledge, made more and more like Jesus Christ. Now we come to the explanation. I'm sorry, we're in the explanation. I'm sorry for that. Now verse, verse 11. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all in all. Some very interesting contrasts. Greek and Jew, those who spoke Greek and those who could not, they're just Jewish, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. A barbarian was one who could not speak Greek in a Greek culture. It sounded like they were saying bar, 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 bar. So they're just called barbarians. Scythians, they were savages that lived, from, that lived by the Black Sea. And they were cruel, immeasurably cruel. Herodotus describes some of their acts, and I can't even tell them to you. They're terrible. They're gruesome. I don't care if you're Greek, barbarian, Scythian, lowest, uh, slave or freeman. You're all one in Christ. What a lesson. You look at this class, what a wide, wide range. Huge range. All ages, mostly old, but we have teenagers in the class. Black, Asian, white. People we would say are well off. In fact, we call them rich. The rich people never think they're rich, but we would call them rich. And some people that are literally in this class living from hand to mouth. We have people that are male and female. We have people from all different kinds of backgrounds. I mean, just a wide breadth of people. But in Christ, we're one. We're one. What a way to describe the marathon class. One, because we're in Christ, and Christ is in all of us. He's in all of us. I don't care who you are. And that means we walk in unity. I'm going to go over time just two minutes because I want to read the testimony of Dale Evans. We all know the story. We, we all know about Dale Evans. Maybe the younger generation doesn't, but we do. Let me give you her testimony. I'm going to abbreviate it as much as I can. Here's what she said. When I was 10 years old, I accepted Christ as my Savior in a Southern Baptist church in Oak Hill, Arkansas. I was baptized there, but I wanted a Savior. I didn't want a Lord. 
As a result, I didn't have a victorious Christian life. I defied my parents and eloped in my early teens with my first sweetheart. The marriage was a failure. Of course it was because I was not following the Lord. But God gave me a son in that union who was to be my anchor all through the confused years that followed. He gave me a boy that I named Thomas Francis. Tom was a believer of great, wonderful faith. How I praise God for him today. There were many turbulent years which followed. His father deserted us. I was finally forced to get a divorce, which I didn't want. I took a business course and went to work as a secretary, but I wanted to get into, into the show business. Then she goes on to talk about how she got into the show business and it ended up in Hollywood. Then number one cowboy, Roy Rogers, was going to make a Western musical, going to make Western musicals. The producer supposed that since I was from Texas, I could ride a horse. I did one film with Roy and I was typed. Roy and I were married on New Year's Eve, 1947. His wife had passed away with the birth of Roy Jr. He, I became the mother to Cheryl, who was an adopted child, Linda, his own daughter, and Roy Jr. My own son was then a music major at USC. The night we were married on a ranch in Oklahoma, God spoke to my heart. I became very much afraid, as if I was standing if I were standing on the highest hilltop and there's no one in the world but God. I dropped to my knees and prayed God to give me courage to be a good wife, a Christian wife, to this cowboy and his motherless children. Later, my son invited me to the Fountain Avenue Baptist Church in Hollywood. God spoke to me at the close of this sermon, and I asked and he asked me to give myself to Christ. I accepted, I, I, I accepted, I am a Christian, he said, she said. I accepted him when I, when I was 10. Then she went on to say, I went home that night and faced myself. I saw the sins of my past and I was horrified as I looked back to them. The very next Sunday, I couldn't wait until I ran down and gave my hand to the pastor. Then she said, and I said, Lord, if you are here to break my life, break it, but just use it. He took me at my word. Now, there are many, many people who accept Christ as Savior. I think she was saved when she was 10, but she never made Christ Lord. Because she didn't make Christ Lord, there was no growth, no growth. I fear there may be people in this class who have trusted in Christ, but are like Dale Evans. They've never made Christ Lord. And they're not being changed moment by moment into the image of Christ. That's it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's it. Just committed to Christ. 11 chapters on justification and some on sanctification, but here, present your bodies. I pray to God that that's true for every person, but it starts with trusting Christ as Savior, recognizing that we, we've sinned and acknowledging that Christ has paid for our sins and he's alive. 
and trusting him to save us. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for this magnificent passage. Give us the grace to put to death the old life, the sins of the old life. And give us the grace to live out the new life, being changed moment by moment as we walk with Christ. I pray for those who are here who have never trusted Christ and ask that they may bow their hearts in simple faith and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I'm trusting you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.